How's it going, ladies and gentlemen? This is Christian with Liberty After Dark, bringing you a new episode of the Liberty After Dark live stream edited into a podcasting format. Uh, we don't really have too much to talk about before the show today. We just go over some topics such as more 2020 Democratic strategy, some uh, CNN opinion polls, some dissection of the way that they look at their candidates for the upcoming election, Donald Trump, the Fed. We go over a whole bunch of different topics as usual, but uh, I won't steal any more of your time. Please enjoy the show. Uh, you know what? We've been waiting for a couple of minutes, so I say I say we're going to go ahead and just start rolling, and we'll we'll pick up the pieces as we go. If more people show up, then great. If not, then whatever. So we've got we got a couple of people here now, and we did like a fifteen minute timer before the show started. So hey, we'll press. So hope everyone is having a fantastic night. Uh, it is morning over here for me. It is ten twelve a.m. exactly. Uh, it's you know, the, not quite the, the earliest part of the morning, but for me, it, it, it is, especially with my work schedule, how I work in, into midnight. So, Spencer says he just got back from the ice rink, taught my kid how to skate, was legit. Sounds legit. Sounds like a fun time. He's a top. I'm assuming that means, oh, <laughs> he can skate well. Um, I was never any good at skating. I'm from Texas, so it was a very rare instance whenever I was able to go skating, but once, uh, yeah, so we get everything uh, going here. We'll just go ahead and jump right into it. For those of you who don't know, uh, James Woods, um, I cannot remember the name of the man who, he's the leader of the, the Black Israelites movement. Um, it starts with a K, but he was also banned from pretty much everywhere on social media. And uh, James Woods and Alex Jones's like last couple of bastions of safety were pretty much erased off the face of the earth. So it's an important uh, thing to be talking about for sure, because we have to be looking at the contents of what these people are saying and whether or not. Oh, thank you, Louis Farrakhan. Um, also, hello, Toby. How's it going? Um, yeah, so just something that we have to definitely be looking at as, as time goes forward. So I kind of wanted to take a little bit of a dissection onto what people are claiming is happening. And then we'll look at what's happening and then we'll look at what the, what my opinion of, of the way that the situation should be handled is. So what, what is being claimed is that social media is targeting conservative voices. And to an extent, by design, that's true because the conservative, especially the radical conservatives, which Louis Farrakhan counts as a radical conservative, believe it or not, um, James Wood could also, depending on who you ask, and Alex Jones definitely is. So you have, you have three examples of, of radical conservatives who have been targeted by social media to be removed from the public. Now, I think a lot of people have an easier time saying that Louis Farrakhan is, you know, a more potential inciting of violence, stuff like that, than, say, Alex Jones or James Woods. But it is, it is important to remember that these, all these sites have a, a terms, of, terms of service, and they all have very, usually very succinct and intentional ways of defining what a violation of their terms of service are. So whenever we look at something like this, we have to ask ourselves, is there a violation here? And under contract law, 
excuse me, I got something stuck in my throat. <laughs> and under contract law, um, it is is there violation an issue? Are we, are we talking about so so? What I'm basically getting at is, are we ha are we talking about an issue of them violating contract law and the fact that they're not upholding their agreements to only ban people under circum certain circumstances, or are they upholding contract law by banning people who violate their terms of service? And I think these are very, two very different conversations to be having. So. Now, for an example, yeah, so Caleb here says, holy cow, I didn't know James Woods was taken off. Yeah, James Woods was was hit, and um, he said some sort of inflammatory things. I don't necessarily believe that the posts that I've seen from what people are saying was what he got rid of would have been even close to ban-worthy. I'm also not as intimate with Facebook's terms of service as I should be, so that definitely is something to keep in mind as well. Um... And so I think we kind of did both there is that we talked about what is being claimed. And, you know, Trump, Trump is saying that he's going to be keeping an eye on this, which I think is an issue, obviously, because I'm not a big fan of Guberman, uh pretty much at all. I definitely don't want Guberman thinking that it can dictate how social media sites are run. Um, it's a very interesting move from the man who was so big on separating net neutrality from the government to attempt to open up freedom of information and freedom of access and freedom of businesses to pretty much do what they want on the internet. It's a very interesting move for them to then try to hamstring social media organizations in the name of freedom of speech as an ideal. Cause it's not a first amendment issue. It's not, um, some of the, some of the businesses receive corporate funding. Or uh, federal funding. That's true. But federal dollars touch pretty much everything. Everything on in this country, pretty much. If you wanna if you wanna really extrapolate it out, it's all it's all federal money. So um you know, it, it's it's just part of the the world that we live in. So there's usually you'll see this a lot in like the Liberty memes groups, which I think is has it has a certain grain of validity to it, but I don't think it's exactly a rock solid argument. Is that ah well, Facebook receives X Y Z amount of funding, therefore this has become a First Amendment issue because they're receiving government funding, blah blah blah. And we all know it really doesn't work that way, but um, it, it it's not like Facebook is a government entity because they have received funding from the government at some point. So, you know, it's like saying Boeing is a, is a federally owned company because they do defense contracts. Like that's, it, it's not, it's privately owned. Um, and you know, if they wanted to fire someone for saying sandals look bad, it's not a first amendment issue. If they do so, it's just, your your boss thinks you're a dick for not liking sandals. So <laughs> so we have we have that angle to look at all this. So what what should we be doing about stuff like this? Um is that people who are more oh excuse me, Jesus. <clears throat> there's like I don't know if there's something in the air today, but it just keeps like clogging up my throat. Um Caleb says it good here. Uh short step uh to government running social media. That's a very good point, in my personal opinion. 
is that the, the more involved you get in stuff like this, when we're talking about terms of service agreements and we're talking about interpretations of, of your, your freedom of speech on a platform and stuff like that, is the, the closer you get to the government just saying, I will handle this. And that's not, that's not what I want. That's not what I want at all. I don't think it's what any of you want. And the only way to really fix that is to just accept the fact that some people are going to get banned for bad reasons, for reasons that you probably won't like. I probably won't like. Um, and you don't have to like everything somebody does. I think that's another huge issue that we have right now is that, oh man, I don't like the decision that this entity made. We got to make a freaking law about this. And I'm not suggesting that that's what any of you are saying, but that is the overall public reaction to a situation like this is to stop and say, Hey, let's, uh, let's get the, let's get the government involved here. See what they can do. See if they can help us out and see if they can fix some things. So, and I don't, I don't think that that's the right answer. I don't see how that's productive. I see that as state controlled social media. Uh, I mean, you want to kill social media off. That's a great way to do it. Uh, just, just literally give it to the FBI instead of working with them. Uh, <laughs> oh man, it's uh, it sounds like the opposite of a fun time. If I do say so myself. Ugh. The more government starts to find, uh, or starts to look at an issue they don't normally look at, the more chance it becomes a national partisan issue. The legislation gets proposed, and you know, yeah, statism. Aaron says, uh, the government gives funding as an excuse to claim rights to oversight. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of cases, yeah. And uh, to a certain extent, they do out of, you know, the, the way that when you give when you give an entity money, if you were to give an entity millions of dollars, you would have a right to oversight. Um, the government does the same thing as an entity, the government. It, it does the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, and it's it's sort of strategic move for them. It's also sometimes fueled by uh, greed or partisan issues or something uh, along that line of thinking. Um, and, and we don't need more of that. I think that's an important thing to address is that we don't need more of that. We need less of that, especially from the libertarian issue. So what I will say is that of all the the crazy ideas to have on this this earth, one of them should not be to have the government get involved with social media determining the efficacy of some of its users. Um, you know, one day maybe I'll get banned by Facebook and I'll change my mind about that. But in the moment now, again, as someone who's not as intimate as they should be about the terms of service of Facebook, Twitter, etc., um, they write them intentionally vague to give them more power in some situations. Um, but I've also seen lots of situations where they haven't necessarily been abused as hard as they could. I think it depends on the person in the situation. Um, James Woods, I think, is an outlier. Uh, it's probably someone who's just really pissed off at James Woods who did that. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, like I said, he's, he's written some inflammatory things, but n nothing that I would say was necessarily man worthy. But again, um, I'm not Facebook. I probably wouldn't really ban anybody. Uh, I would just allow people to block people, but that's just, that's just me. So I'm not Facebook. I cannot speak on their behalf. 
I don't know if you guys have any commentary on that. It's just something I wanted to address because it's it's popped up multiple times on my news feed is that Trump is tweeting about these bans uh, and how he's going to be looking at social media. So I wanted to make sure what my position was was clear and what I believe overall the libertarian position sort of should be was also clear. So, oh, we got a little interesting fun one that I'm going to go over in a second. It's the uh, 2020 Democratic uh, candidates tax returns. Uh, you can find this link. How accurate it is, um, I haven't really been able to sit by and and really comb through all the data, but uh, I do think it's pretty interesting. If you look at what this means for the people who are looking at voting for these candidates, and I think this will make a good transition into the, the 2020 conversation about Nancy Pelosi. I know we talk about the Democrats a lot here, but I think there's a really important understanding of know thy enemy. Uh, a really important statement, you know, know, know thy enemy, just as much as we should know the Republicans. And it's really hard to know what Donald Trump is going to do next. So we just kind of have to hold on to the reins for that one. It's very important to know what Democratic strategies are to, to understand what what is happening and why, in my personal opinion. And to be able just to dissect and have a conversation about it so that we can, I don't know, just reach a, an understanding period. Um. Aaron says, I don't understand why if blocking is a thing, uh, why bans are even necessary. Well, that's the idea, right? Is that if you have the ability to block someone so you can no longer see their content, there's no reason really to ban except for you don't want it to spread to other people who maybe want to hear those things. I don't know. Maybe it's... You know, there, there are some legitimate reasons, like say you're inciting violence against a person and your followers you already have are enough zealots that they can um, be swayed. Let's put it that way. So, I don't know. Something to think about. How many Democratic candidates are there now? Isn't it north of 20? Um, I believe so, but uh, there's only about eight that actually matter. Um... Let's see here. What do we got? We got Kamala Harris. We got Joe Biden. We have Elizabeth Warren. We have uh, Bernie Sanders. We have, oh, geez, uh, Spartacus, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, um, the other white chick whose name I can't remember, and then the Squirrely McGee guy whose name I don't remember um, as well. They're all running. And they're they're probably like the the, the biggest high ticket. Um, oh, that's uh, Pete Butegi. Is that how you say it? It's the one that says his, his name starts with a butt. Um, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not. I've, I don't even think I've heard anybody say it. That's so much he's in the conversation. So I think that's like seven or eight, something like that. Um, but I found this chart here, and this is actually from CNN. So this is pretty interesting. So we're we're getting a we're getting a dive into the mind of the people who are going to be voting for these candidates, right? Like, if you are a typical CNN reader, you pretty much are left leaning. You're pretty much going to vote Democrat, unless you're like me and you like to go onto sites like this and and look at it. See, Yang is. I don't think Yang has a chance. I don't think Yang is going to make it past even like the first round of the primaries. Um, everybody says, don't forget about Yang. And and trust me, $1,000 a month for a year is a great pitch. 
He's just not going to get the Democratic National Convention support. What he's going to do is he's going to push the overturn window once again, and he's going to make the UBI even more palatable in 2024 whenever he runs again. Because that man's probably going to run until he dies, and he's got those genes to where he's just not going to die. So <laughs> we'll have a 100-year-old Andrew Yang running. He's going to give a million dollars a month because his, his competitors are only offering $500,000 a month. So, <laughs> but, um, so the, the, one of these charts here is, uh, it's, it's basically their income tax returns. It's how much they claimed as total income for X, Y, Z years. Right. So let's go through here real quick. We have number one being Kamal Harris. This is 2018. The charts kind of flip around a little bit. Um, by the way, none of these people have made... Actually, that's not true at all. Uh, Pete Butegi is, is the lowest and has been below 200000 from beginning to end. Everyone else has either been or has never been below uh, $200,000 a year. So Kamal Harris at, at 2018's tax returns is $1.9 million. Elizabeth Warren is 850000 Bernie Sanders last year was 560000 That's... That's down from his 1.1 million 2017 tax returns. <clears throat> Cory Booker is also at an all-time low of 150,000. Um, that's an that's interesting. Better O'Rourke doesn't have 2018 tax returns out. He made 370,000 dollars in 2017 though. And uh, old Pete at the very bottom, poor Pete, 150,000 dollars. That sounds rough, man. Barely making those six-figure salaries. So. Why is something like this important? Why? I mean, like, you know, it's besides the fact that maybe you want to see like, oh, okay, how successful are these people? And you could see like, just if you, if you want to just give like a monetary figure, like they're all moderately to very successful people. Like I would consider making $150,000 a year to be extremely successful, at least by the ordinary person's standards, right? It's not the most money in the world, but you're going to get by and you'll be fine. Uh, you can have a nice house, all that stuff, nice car, whatever. But um, so, but the reason is, is because being up towards the top of this list is a bad thing. Uh, and seeing yourself towards the bottom of the list, that means you're one of the poor's. And one of the poor's, other poor's can identify with you. Because remember, this is a, this is a, a generation of identity politics. So you can't identify as a poor with Kamala Harris. Oh, what the... <laughs> yeah, almost $400,000. Yeah, I have no idea uh, what he did to make almost $400,000. But um, back to what I was saying, the, you, you, can't, I, you can't identify with a rich person if you're poor, right? They can only identify with you and understand you if they are also poor. So none of these people are poor. Let's get that out of the way to begin with. But what I will say is that... If you are, you know, someone who understands very little and are an energized Democratic voter, it's very easy for you to fall into the trap of saying like, oh, well, Kamal Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, they're all part of the 1%. And I said I was going to eat the rich back in like 2008, so in 2012. So I can't, I can't really, you know, I can't really vote for them. Um, so we're going to give all of our money to, I don't know, Beto or, or to Cory Booker or somebody. Now, what is actually going to happen 
is that uh, Kamal Harris is going to get the DNC nomination and it won't matter what their personal opinion on how much somebody makes is. But, oh, yeah, <laughs> yet they make their supporters think that they're not a part of the elite. No, it's true. Like, these people are all successful elites. They, they all are. Every single one of them. There's not a single person on that list that I just gave you of what are considered, like, credible 28 or 2020 democratic candidates that is like not one of the pish posh members of society it's true maybe the closest is old pete here but even then he's he's not exactly like your average dude i mean he's a politician this is like what he you know this is what he is going to be doing now so it kind of it kind of you know he was a mayor before this so or he is still currently a mayor actually so, I mean, he's, you know, he's been in politics to some point, but I mean, the, so the next chart that they have is charitable giving and it's uh, charitable deductions as a percentage of gross or adjusted gross income by year from 2009 to 2018. And uh, once again, you have, you know, Cory Booker in 2013, Booker reached the maximum deductions of 50% donating cash and stock. So that's, you know, that's good. You got to figure out who the most charitable is as well because every you know and i'm not saying this is a bad quality of a person to have like i think it's it's commendable if you actually want to you know donate your money i do think it's interesting that he 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 stopped at the maximum deduction i think uh potentially there's a little bit of of uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, kickback, you know, on the taxes front, but you know, it's not, you're, you're not exactly giving away $1 because you're, you're getting some of that off in a tax break. So I don't know. I mean, that's a little judgy of me to say, to be completely honest. Uh, Caleb says, I never understood that with leftists. Do they think that everyone is filthy rich except for Democrats running for or already in office? Oh yeah. I think it would be, I mean, it's it's a little bit of like brainwashing. Uh, you see more so than in the the right. You see a lot of people on the left who say things like, "Ah, I am one of you." You know, we are the same. We are cut from the same cloth. Um, we can identify with each other. We're part of the same tribe. You know, you get that atmosphere. The right doesn't necessarily have that. Um, the, and and there's a I can't oh, I cannot remember who said it. I was listening to a podcast. And uh, someone said, it was a guest on uh, on a show, and he said that uh, the right looks for leaders while the left looks for brothers. And I thought that was a very apt way of putting it because the left wants someone who's like, um, that the, they feel like represents them, that is them. And the right wants someone who they feel like will will pick up what they have and take them to somewhere better. They want someone who is like a strong leader. The left doesn't necessarily want a strong leader. They want someone who's like them. So I heard that apparently the Sanders donate next to nothing to charity. Know anything about that? It doesn't. Uh, I know it doesn't define a person or whatever, but it seems almost hypocritical because of everything they spew. Um, we have Bernie Sanders is in second to last place. Uh, his highest donation year was 5% of charitable deductions of adjusted gross income. So actually it's less than 5%, which puts him at second to last place next to Beto, who for a pretty long time donated zero or pretty damn close to zero uh, until recently when he donated 5%. So yeah, uh, 
you know, Kamal Harris is pretty close. Pete's pretty close. Uh, Amy's like kind of in the middle of like two to four percent, three maybe. Uh, it's not a very clear chart. Elizabeth Warren is in second place after Cory Booker. So, yeah, um, Bernie's Bernie's second to last next to Beto. So, <laughs> yeah, if that answers your question. Too bad their charitable contributions are to political organizations and not to help people in need. Yeah, uh, that's just sort of the the whole issue of being a politician and donating to begin with. Um, I know there's been some conversation about politicians talking about why they don't donate so much to like private organizations or to stuff like that, and it's uh, it has to do with potential repercussions of like the organization kickbacking and having uh, you know some kind of potential history that is you know things that politicians worry about that they don't really have to worry about in the current landscape but you know may, perhaps there is a legitimate concern there i don't know i'm not a politician um i just like to to use what i know to make an assumption about what is happening so there's one more uh interesting fact here there's one more interesting chart and that is writing it is all the candidates except one Beto O'Rourke reported making money from writings. And this is how much money they have made from selling books. So you have Elizabeth Warren at $2.8 million. Bernie Sanders at $2.1 million. Cory Booker at $1.3 million. Kamala Harris at $730,000. Uh, Amy, oh God, I cannot say her name. I should know it. Klubark or however you say that. K-L-O-B-U-C-H. AR, yeah. Uh, $100,000. Pete has made $31,000 on book sales, which, hey, I mean, that's more, more than I made. And Beto has made a whopping uh, zero as far as we know. Um, I'm pretty sure he has a book. I could be wrong. I'm going to fact check myself on that one. So I don't necessarily know what's up with that. Yeah, he does have a book. It's uh, Dealing Death and Drugs is the name of it. And uh, that's definitely should be reported on there. But I guess he probably doesn't want to give that stuff away. I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just, it's a part of, again, so we'll talk about what the, what, what this means for the, what, what they're looking for here. And, and it talks about, it's the same kind of a thing we were just talking about with income tax. If you see that. Elizabeth Warren made $2.8 million. It's harder for you, in, in theory, as poor McPoor person to, uh, to see Elizabeth Warren as someone who can understand your plight, right? It's like, how does the woman who made $2.8 million on book sales understand how it is to not be able to afford gas before your next paycheck or to not be able to afford health insurance? Or to not be able to, um, you know, pay pay off your car payment or something like that. How can someone who makes this much money on writing be able to understand your plight? So, again, we have to look at it that way. You can also look at it as an underdog story. Um, I mean, no one really takes Pete seriously. Um, but, you know, you could say like, oh, this Pete guy here, he only made $31,000. But he wrote a book and that's cool. And uh, he's like me, you know, he's an underdog. I don't know. 
there's there's been crazier turnaround stories. So that's all I had for the charts, really. I just kind of wanted to talk about them because I feel like they give us a good uh, view into the mind of a, a left or or democratic. And, you know, these are kind of stereotypes that I'm, I'm running off of here, but there is a certain grain of truth to it. These charts are important to Democratic voters for these reasons. Not all of them, obviously. Not every single person who views these charts, some of them won't care. Some of them want, you know, things like social platforms. But the reason that these charts are on this website is because some people do care. And uh, enough for it to make homepage first thing you click this week. So... It's definitely not something that you can just brush aside and say like, ah, you know, nobody really cares how much money they made. No, no, people do care. People really do care. And it's important to keep in mind. So we're going to press a little bit. And uh, there's been some interesting conversation about the, the Democratic Party and the position that it's in. Because if you think about it, if you take a step back and you dissect what's going on, in our country, you have uh, this this very interesting perspective if, of that. They either have the opportunity to take everything in a huge landslide if they can get some sort of moderate example of coordination across themselves, or they are going to drop the ball and we're going to have a Trump 2020, most likely. Um, except for this is the year that the libertarians get it, guys. This is this is the year. Um <laughs> I wish um, I'd rather have any of them than these two, except for, well, Weld's not a libertarian anymore, so I don't have to worry about him. I would take McAfee over either of the Democrats or the Republicans, and that's saying something. Um, however, what I, um, what I will say is that the, the conversation about the left eating itself alive has been going on since... Uh, probably 2012, really, when social justice finally started to spin up, uh, really started becoming popular from like 2015, and, and it kind of got memed. But uh, I think the meme is coming into fruition finally. Like, we, you've heard this for years, like, ah, the left is eating itself alive. And it's over usually, it used to be little things, like somebody gives someone a, a glare, and you're like, ah, the left is eating themselves alive, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you know is that you have actual examples of them shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly. So uh, Pelosi warns Democrats, stay in the center or Trump may contest election results. <laughs> Pragmatism enters. Rich is here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, Pelosi warns Democrats stay in the center or Trump may contest election results. So basically what has happened here is that Nancy Pelosi pretty much sat all the Democrats down. The ones that weren't there, she kind of was speaking to all of them, essentially. And she said, and really this was addressed at a couple of people. Some of the people who are running for president, your AOCs, people like that. And she said, uh, hey, uh, stop being crazy socialist commies and we have to come towards the center. We have to move towards the center because Nancy Pelosi understands something that these radical leftists do not. And that is that to win office, you have to appeal to the single most common denominator. 
you cannot win solely off of fringe extremist movements, right? So one thing that you can gain from the Donald Trump campaign is that one, they got pretty lucky, honestly, with the states that they won. Uh, some of them swung really hard, but they they were running against a repulsive candidate who was throwing out repulsive policies. They were appealing to as many people of the common variety, the, the single common denominator as possible. He was uh, also trying to appeal to a large group of people. And what you have right now on the left is you have a very specific focus towards a very specific group of people. And they are pushing that hard. And everyone else is sort of pushed to the wayside. Now, what that is good at is scoring you social justice points. What that is not good at is winning you elections. So when you th say things like, we need reparations for the African-American community paid for by the white community. When you say things like that, you're going to get people who are extremely energized. But you're not going to have an overall positive reaction to something like that. When you say things like that, you are pushing so many potential voters away. So many. And so if you're just looking at an electability standpoint, if you continue to push something like that, you are screwing your chances of ever getting into office. And that's been a big conversation as of late as well, is like reparations policies. And I hope I don't have to explain why a reparation policy is a horrible idea. Um, I mean, it's just the most statist, convoluted, just esoteric thing I've heard in a long time. But there are people out there who apparently don't understand that. Um, Caleb says, I don't think uh, the left is able to stay in the middle. They're way too far left of the left now. Um, I think the right is too far right of the right now to ever come back into the middle as well. And that's that's kind of the idea of the partisan polarization that's been going on. Uh, give me one second. My nose is a little stopped off. I'm going to blow my nose over here. So, All right, I'm back. <laughs> I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I was like, if I stand up, I'm going to have walk over all this crap I have over here. So whatever. Um, so where was I? Yeah, so we were talking about the right being too far of the right. It's just the idea of the whole partisan divide that we have going on right now. And, but Nancy Pelosi's words ring true. And I think that if they were to pull Trump is so repulsive as a figure now, especially now that people have like kind of gotten over him being like the haha funny or Trump guy. So repulsive as a president that there are people who can be swayed by moderate Democrats. Or by conservative Democrats. Remember when that was a thing? In like 2008? Anybody else? Just me? Seems like it's just me these days. But <laughs> uh, yeah, conservative Democrats used to be a real thing. And they were socially conservative, fiscally liberal. Um, and, and so now you have the right is socially conservative and socially liberal. And you have the left, which is fiscally conservative or fisc fiscally and socially liberal. Uh Christian, do you think partisan divide will ever get better? I feel like it's so extreme right now. So the funny thing is, is that if you look historically, partisan divides have always been extremely bad. They always have. And, and you know, people say things like, oh, they've never been this bad before. Like, we don't have people in Congress caning each other right now. When people say things like, oh, we're on the way to a new civil war, like, 
we got a ways to go, guys. Like, let's let's calm down here. Like, we still have plenty of opportunities to come through this amicably and peacefully. What we need is we we need to encourage a system to where we can get through these partisans. Um, so basically, we're just saying that because we're living it. Like, there is an extreme partisan divide. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, you know, back when, back when it was like the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans, which is what they were called back in the day, you know, partisan divides were extremely, you know, spread out back then. And, it, you know, it, for, for basically as long as political parties and systems have existed before the United States has existed, pretty much for forever, there has been extreme partisan divides. It's just how people work. You get your tribe. You have your tribe. Anybody who's not a part of your tribe is alien. Um, it's natural, but so is, you know, eating raw meat because you don't know how to cook. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you should be doing that. Um, at some point, you just have to elevate yourself. And uh, I think that's what more people need to do. It's really easy to get sucked into the game. It's so easy. I did it for years. Most people have done it for years. Um, you know, I, I, I still, I still bash on the left and the right all the time. That's fine. But at some point we have to be able to step back and say that there is there, this, this partisan divide, it does exist. And I'm not saying that we can ever heal it, but at some point we have to, we have to be able to have a conversation with each other. And right now we can't have conversations with each other. Whose fault that is. I don't really care to be completely honest with you. You could blame it on the left. You could blame it on the right. You could blame it on centrists for all I care. What I care about is that a conversation is being had, which is part of the reason why I do this. Another reason of is because I find it fun. But uh, <laughs> so when Nancy Pelosi comes out and says, hey, AOC, all of you crazy socialist left-leaning freakazoids, we have to come closer to the center. That is something that resonates with me. Not because I would ever vote for any of them anyways, if they came towards the center, but because it shows that they understand at some level in their leadership that what they are doing is not conducive to good politics and, and, and to a development of a better America, which is, which is admirable. Um, you know, as much as I, I talk crap about the left, I think overall, as, as much of a bleeding heart liberal as she is, Nancy Pelosi has, has a pretty good ethical standard by which she does politics she can be very cutthroat and she has in the past but uh as far as as far as holding some sort of of ethical standard i think you know i i i, I rarely talk bad about her because besides the fact that she's a, a liberal quack i don't have much bad things to say about her so oh yeah read about the jefferson versus adams campaign uh, that was some nasty, nasty mudslinging. Oh yeah, they called each other horrible, horrible names. Uh, yeah, so it's just something that you have to keep in mind. Um, it's a perspective thing, really. We've been we've been really blessed with the fact that we we are in a time that promotes peaceful conversation and discourse. We do not need to be pushing for more extreme partisan divides. Um, they exist. They are real. They are natural repercussions of the system that we live in and us as human beings being what we are. That is not an excuse to perpetuate them. We can elevate ourselves above that. 
uh, and we should, we could, should continue to. Now, the reaction to Nancy Pelosi has been very, uh, very mixed. Uh, you have some people here, I'm trying to look for a name of an example so that I'm not just throwing out words. Um, Chuck Schumer here says, you know, he, for example, agrees with Nancy Pelosi's statement. Of course he does. Um, but, you know, there are plenty who don't. AOC does not agree with Nancy Pelosi's uh, statement. Kamal Harris does not agree with Nancy Pelosi's statement. And so the radical leftists who are running for president right now have an interesting way to spin this to continue to energize their, their extreme radical leftist base. They have the opportunity to say, okay, now we're going to push against our own internal establishment. That is a horrible idea if you want to get elected, but it's a great idea if you want to push the whole, I am not the system mentality. If you want to push that and you want to really run with that and you want to see what's up with that and, and, and try to win that angle, which will not get you through the Democratic National Convention, but will get you popular support and get your ideas out there for a candidate to potentially pick up. That's one way to do it. Push against the system. Say, oh, you see all these big wig guys over here that have been in, in Congress since like the dinosaurs were around. Yeah, screw them. We don't need them, right? Well, you sort of do. You sort of really do to win an election these days. But uh, regardless, that is the choice that these candidates are making. We'll see if it pays off for him. It's a bold move, Cotton. So, <laughs> oh man, sorry. I'm just going through making sure I didn't miss any comments. Josiah or Hosea? I don't know how to say that one. I'm gonna be completely honest with you. Hosea, maybe? Uh, I don't think there's an A there. However you say it. How's it going, man? I'm pretty sure it's Hosea. Now that I said it out loud, just made me sound super dumb. <laughs> I gotta get some water real quick. I've just been like blabber mouthing for the last like 45 minutes. So, you know, at times I think it can be fun how much I am able to, uh, I think it can be fun to, uh, hold a, a, a conversation by myself, but I do miss the fact that my guest is not here. It makes it a lot easier for me to be able to take a mental breather for a second. Otherwise I just have to take like these pauses. Um, I don't want to zuck my stream again, but I don't think I have any funny clips that I can play. Oh, I can play this one. Hold on. It should work. I hope it works. Give me like five seconds. <laughs> I hope it's not the wrong one. Where is it? Okay, that one. That's it. Right here. Trump took my bunk socks and peach. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. Gary! That... Uh, I was just looking for the sports channel, Gary. That one always gets me. I, I'm so proud of that little clip that I made right there. I <laughs> I can't even explain it. I was just looking around for like stock green screen footage and I found that one. And I was like, oh, what am I going to put in here? And I was like, oh, let's take some out of context clip about me saying that we should impeach Trump. That sounds like a great time. <laughs> if you watch that whole episode or listen to it, um, I think it was the first or second chat with the chat episode, which I guess this is going to be another of those. But it was, uh, someone was talking about how he should be impeached because of the bump stock ban. And so I kind of repeated his Trump should be impeached. I agree that. And then I cut it off, but you know, <laughs> look, nothing like some out of context quotes. 
Um, the idea of being an, an, the anti-establishment candidate worked for Trump. So, of course, the Democrats have a few trying to do the same. It's not a bad move. Anti-establishment candidates have always existed since the dawn of politics. Since there has been an establishment, there has been anti-establishment candidates. You could argue that pretty much the libertarian movement as a whole is like an entire group of anti-establishment candidates. Um because they don't have those deep political ties into the, the, the current system of government that we have now. Um, whether you not vote, you vote libertarian, I'm just more making an observation than anything. Uh, there, there is a certain, a certain point though, where you have to ask, like, is this the best move for your campaign? Like if you're actually trying to get elected, should you be doing this? And most of the time, the answer is no to something like that. But it, who knows? Like I said, it's a bold move. It may pay off for him. I, I'm not a political analyst. I could, couldn't 100% tell you without feeling like I'm lying to you. So it's just a dangerous game that they play. And they're the ones who are playing it, not me. So um, there's, oh, let's talk about this. So you guys have heard Elizabeth Warren's student debt forgiveness plan, right? Because so the right is trying to sell everybody on principle essentially a horrible principle, horrible principle, right? Let's just get that out of the way. But that's pretty much what they have to sell. They have the, the pull you up by your bootstraps mentality. They have the stronger, better, faster economy. They have, you know, the, the whole conservative ethics side of, of what they sell. The Democrats literally are just trying to sell you things like I will buy you for this much. Like, <laughs> So this calculator came out from Senator Warren's uh, campaign, and it's supposed to show how much you will get back from from your student debt, right? So I'll go through the calculator right now. I think I can pull it up in a little window here. Um, let's do that. That'll be fun for the live stream. Uh, I should be able to go to window capture, cancel my student debt. We'll put it up in this corner over here. Oh, this is fun. This is a cool idea. Um, let me just size this up a little bit so that you guys can can see it a little bit better. All right, so you can see my mouse over here. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. It says Elizabeth's new plan will cancel more than 95% of people with student loan debt and pay for it with a tax on the top 1% of America or 0.1% of Americans. See how much debt you'll have canceled under Elizabeth Warren's plan. So I think it's hilarious that this part right here and pay for it with a tax on the top 0.1% of Americans. Like they're just bragging about it at this point. Like you get free, you know, you get to get freed of the debt that you, you took in and we're going <laughs> to, we're going to tax the 1% 0.1% for it as well. Like, I think that's a, that's a funny idea that that's like such a big deal. But yes, I do have student debt, $13,500. Um, what was your income last year on your tax returns? I'm broke. I'm broke as hell. Um, <laughs> you'll be debt free. Look at that guys. Look at that. All I have to do is just support the plan. Why, why pay off my student debt? I'll just give her $13,000 and then we'll be good to go. Right? <laughs> okay. Let's read this one. You'll be debt free. Great news. You'll have all of your debt canceled under Elizabeth's plan. Elizabeth's plan isn't some pie in the sky idea. It's a proposal that would make or make a tangible impact on millions of Americans' lives, and 100% of it will be paid for by Elizabeth's ultra-millionaire tax. 
That's the name of it, guys. Like, can I get a T-shirt that says that? Elizabeth's Ultra Millionaire Tax. If this plan would be personally meaningful for you or for someone you know, sign up to support the plan. Oh, oof. Just somebody can save me, for the love of God. Oh, adding your name. Oh, God, no. Get me out of here. Jesus. Okay, we'll close this window. Okay, yeah. Oh, gag me with a spoon. Like, I, I knew it was going to tell me that. Like, I think I think you have to put some ridiculously high differential in order to not qualify. Because uh, there are, there is a standard by which you have to qualify. Like, if it's a certain amount of your annual income, you automatically qualify. So, uh, or above that. Aaron says, the top 0.1% don't pay taxes. The tax code is written specifically to keep them from paying any. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of funny how that works, right? Like, I would be 100%. You know, this is something that you think both sides of the, the aisles could get behind, right? Is it's like, hey, let's reform the tax code. And they're like, oh, we want to raise and lower taxes and blah. No, no, no. Let's just simplify the tax code. You really want to keep this system of generating revenue. Like, let's, let's have it work and then we can dial it back from there. How about that? Um, Obviously, I think zero is the appropriate tax rate, but, you know, there's a certain point where you have to just accept it as a transitarianism TM. You're, you're going to have to transition off of the system that exists now. So, we'll, well, I think simplifying the tax code is a great way towards that. And then you start cutting out lower income earners and you start rolling back percentages on higher income earners. And then, yeah, you just phase the system out. Top 0.1%. Yeah, Caleb, it's, it's, a, it's a good one, man. I, I enjoyed that. <sighs> oh, the specific requirements. Sorry, they're right here. Warren's plan would cancel up to $50,000 in student debt for any uh, from anyone whose household household earnings is less than $100,000 a year. Um, but the amount of relief gets gradually smaller as income level goes up. Houses that make more than $250,000 would not be eligible for any debt relief. Uh, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, if okay, <laughs> another out of context quote right there. Let's pump the brakes for a second. I did not think about what I was saying there. What I think is, is that if you look at it from the perspective of where Elizabeth Warren is coming from, of like helping people, which 80, we could talk about the ramifications and if this actually helps anyone, but if you, if you look at it from her point of view, to give her the full benefit of the doubt and to be as fair as possible, it, it makes sense to have a a progress or a regressive system like that. It makes sense because uh, the more money you have, the more likely you are to be able to pay it off without it crippling your way of life. And you know, to, if you make a your household has two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, I'm pretty sure you can pay off your student student debt, loan debt. Like that's something you can do. You can manage. Um, <laughs> Personally, I think if you can't take on the, if you can't pay off the money, you don't take on the debt. But did anyone watch any of the money revealed videos? Uh, are you talking about the whole, like, how the tax system works and it's like the cartoon series or something? I remember watching one like that, but that is, I, I don't remember the name money revealed off the top of my head. That is a new one to me. We're probably maybe not new, but I just don't recognize it. 
Non-student ultra millionaires for Yang. See, yeah, Rich, Rich has it right here. You, if you went to college, which is most, uh, actually, I don't know if the percentage of college students has gone down yet. I'll have to look up on that. But if you went to college, you probably like Warren a little bit more than you like Yang. But if you didn't go to college, or if you don't have any more debt, or it's not enough for it to really matter, you probably like Yang a little bit more. If you if you just like to be sold things. No, it was interviews with mega million millionaires. No, I've never I've never seen them. I mean, I'm sure it's interesting. Mega millionaires often have lots of interesting secrets and not so much secrets, but interesting ways of looking at the world. Um, I remember there was one guy I was watching an interview of who's some successful serial entrepreneur. And he was like, oh, man, he's like, I'm, I'm a douchebag. I just I come in. I see something. I want to make some money. I make the money. I don't care if I hurt people's feelings. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, hey, you got to do what you got to do to make the money, I guess. There were a few posts about it in the LM groups in the last weeks. Yeah, I must have missed them. I, I didn't. I did not see that. Um, of course, you still have this. Uh, just kind of bring it back a little bit. You still have these uh, large swaths of people talking about beginning impeachment proceedings for uh, for the president. Um, I just can't really get behind that. Obviously, I don't, I don't think that's like a. <laughs> I don't think that's going to surprise anybody that I can't really get behind that. But it's uh, definitely something that we have to understand is that there still is a large group of people trying to push for impeachment. It's not enough to actually impeach, but it's enough to continue speaking about it for the next year and some change. I swear to God, they'll talk about impeaching him until he's not president anymore. So if he wins again, you're ready for another five years of this because that's all you're going to hear. <laughs> a radical proposal to get Donald Trump reelected in 2020. I just saw this. This is from yesterday. Uh, CNN, 56% approve of how Trump uh, is handling the economy. That's from a CNN poll. So it seems like people approve... Trump's tariffs and the left is just God. They just blow my mind. They just blow my mind. A CNN conducted poll says that fifty percent, fifty six percent approve of how Trump is handling the economy. And that's absolutely <laughs> that is a crazy idea right there. That is absolutely insane. I don't know if I. I think I can play these news sources on my stream. But I'll have to look into that for next time because I want to play some of this stuff. They're showing that pretty much. Oh, oh, actually, uh, choice for president amongst registered voters on a CNN poll is that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren is a 47 percent likely to choose for president rate as opposed to Donald Trump's 48 percent, which he seems to. Yeah, he holds a universal 48 percent. And there's obviously the margin of error. Beto O'Rourke is actually one of the higher polling ones. I did not expect him to be able to. This is an interesting point here. I know I've just kind of been looking and like clicking through this thing, but I didn't realize that Beto is polling that well. And I know polls are not the best measurement for how to see what the likelihood of a candidate gaining anything in a, in a campaign is. But I think it's interesting to see that. Beto is, is doing that well. He did very well in Texas. Well enough that I was concerned we were going to have Beto as, as a senator. Um, we didn't. We got 
we got Ted Cruz. Woo. <laughs> I voted for the libertarian candidate and he obviously got like, I think he got like 3% of the vote or something, something really small, but you know, I mean, Hey, baby steps, right? Um, but the whole reason I clicked on this, uh, is, is that this, this is an article by somebody. Essentially it's saying that once, once we keep, if we were to keep Donald Trump in, in office, right, you would have the best chance of destroying the Republican Party's reputation. Because basically what they're saying is, the, the joke is, and, and it's not really a joke, this is kind of like collapsitarianism, except for they're trying to target a party to collapse. The idea is, is that if you allow Trump to get reelected, what he's doing will inevitably cause a crash to happen. Because the crash is right around the corner, if you look historically speaking. Um, and when that crash happens, everyone will blame Trump, and there will be no chance of getting Republicans back in office. So you have this very fringe, esoteric idea coming out of the left to to basically sabotage the Republican Party. Because obviously all the stuff that Trump is benefiting from now is, is from Obama, which there's a saying typically that... It takes a term to see results. Usually it's the opposition party that's saying that. Like when Obama came into office, they're like, ah, the recession's Obama's fault. And then they're like, ah, no, it's definitely George Bush's. And they're like, no, it's, it's Obama. He's been in office for like a day and it's all his fault. It's interesting though. Because uh, what, what a lot of people think that people vote for Trump for is for his handling of the economy. I don't honestly think that's what it is. I think people think they're voting for Trump's handling of the economy, but I don't think they actually understand what they're voting for. They see, oh, well, he's a businessman. He knows the economy. He knows how to handle money. He's got this. Um, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. That's uh, if you ask most people who support Trump, what he's done for the economy, they couldn't name you three things. They couldn't. They might say like deregulation, and if you ask for any specifics, they won't know any. They may say like trade, which is not true. Tariffs have done no good for our economy at all. It hasn't even it hasn't even fixed the trade deficit. Like all these tariffs that he's doing is literally just making metal more expensive. And I know most of them are being rolled back now, which is good because we've came into a certain agreement with China. But it didn't have to be that way to begin with. Yeah, okay, cool. We sold rice to China or soybeans or whatever the fuck it was. I don't really care what we sold to China. What what I think is hilarious is that people were like, ah, well, you know, Trump's handling the economy is so amazing. It's really not. Like, he's, he's more riding on the coattails of an already bullish economy. We have incredibly low interest rates from the Federal Reserve, which allows for an extremely large amount of, of lending and spending. And... If you have lending and spending, you're going to have growth in an economy. You're going to. Credit pushes economies further. Not stimulus packages. Not you got to pay this back tomorrow credit. Long-term amicable credit with low interest rates. That builds economies. It does. Especially with a fiat currency. Um, if you have too much stagnant money, it doesn't get anywhere. So that's what we have. But we have had too low of an interest rate for too long. What is the interest rate right now? What is what is it at the Federal Reserve? Federal Reserve interest rates right now are at... Oh, man. 
or federal funds rate is actually what it's called. Um, so right now, right now it's a, it's at four point seven percent, four point seven percent, which is absolutely insane. The Fed is supposed to raise interest rates once more in the third quarter, and then that's it for 2019. Okay? That is absolute... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I misquoted, by the way. It was not 4.7%. That was where it was before the interest rates were dropped. It uh, 25 basis points higher. So it will go from 2.50% where it is at the moment to 2.75%. So let me just bring this back for you. Before the crash, we were at like a 4.7-ish percent interest rate, which we're talking about the 2008, you know, crisis. We have not gone back to an interest rate anywhere near that since then. In fact, we didn't have an interest rate change for most of Obama's presidency. Um, most of it until the very end. I think it was like uh, 2011, 2012, was, or uh, 20, sorry, 2014, 2015. They made one change, and then they did again in 2016. Um, for years, years, we had almost no changes on interest rate. And, you know, whatever, the Fed's a joke. It does. It's like fake money, and no one, it just comes out of nowhere, and they're, they're like basically not even real if you think about it, but whatever. And we can, we can joke about the system, but like the system that it exists right now is being broken from the inside. It is being broken by the fact that we have way too low of an interest rate, way too low. And so people are saying like, oh, the economy is doing great. It's going to do great. When you have a bullish market like this, it is a result of an influx of credit into a system that is being, uh, it is spending it just as fast as it's getting it. So the banks hand out their credit. The Federal Reserve hands out the money to the banks. People get their money, and except for not in that order. <laughs> the Federal Reserve gives the money to the banks. The banks hand that credit to businesses and individuals. They spend the shit out of it, and it inflates the economy. I'm not saying that this system, this debt-based system has to be bad. As long as debt and credit are managed appropriately, it's a net benefit for almost everybody, except for the people who don't, because there's always going to be winners and losers in this game of life. And, you know, some people will fail to pay back their credit, and we have systems for them. But that's kind of a tangent. Um, it, it is a net benefit to a society to have a credit-based system. But you have to manage that credit well. And when you are just printing money into the stratosphere and you can, you have these ridiculously low, 2.75% is like almost half. Well, 2.5 would be a little bit more than half of where it was before the crash. And it's been, it's been over a decade since then, guys. It's been over a decade. Like, we 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 can we can bring interest rates back up now like yeah okay you might be trying to buy a house right now and you may not want that that's cool but what is going to help you more is delaying a debt based crash so i'm not going to say it'll cause a banking collapse or anything but in, is, there's always the chance of an inflation spiral there's so many different things that can cause inflation spirals i know <laughs> it's kind of like a i got an email it was basically saying like it was funny how much I talk about inflation and debt spirals because they're they're kind of one in the same. A debt spiral is more focused on national debt, however. But you can it, it it it's so true. Is that there's so many different factors that can cause one of these events to happen that we have to be vigilant enough. You have to be responsible enough to sit back and say like, hey, this is a possibility of these actions. Let's talk about this. 
because right now we're just kind of like we're just kind of running off the body high at this point. We're just saying like, hey, you know what, man? If it works, it works. Let's just keep doing it. And uh, you know, you know, you may put duct tape on your axle and it hold the boot together for a little bit, but uh, it's <laughs> once it blows and you lose all your oil, you're really gonna wish you just change that CV joint. But yeah, that's a little bit of car humor. Uh, are we sending slash ending the Fed or not? Nah? So you gotta you gotta think, man. Um, so I'm a transitarianist, right? Um, transitarianism, whatever. I coined that word, trademark, whatever. IP theft. Um, we're gonna have the Fed for a little bit. It's gonna be around for a little bit. Because if you get rid of it tomorrow, it's gonna have a lot of really bad repercussions onto the system. That whole debt-based economy that like kind of runs your life right now would disappear. It'd be easier to get rid of the IRS than it would to be able to, to get rid of the Fed, especially internationally. Like if you if you get rid of the government's ability to take in income, everyone just kind of looks at you and they're like, hmm, that's weird. You get rid of the single point, the single crux of your your entire currency uh, that is internationally recognized around the world, people people are gonna kind of freak out. Uh, nationally, internationally, uh, locally, <laughs> everybody's going to freak out. I say yes when we get there, okay? <laughs> when we get there. Those Yang Bucks aren't going to help us get rid of the Fed either because that money's got to come from somewhere and it's going to be probably an interior loan. And that's because uh, I, I highly doubt we'll take foreign credit to pay our <laughs> citizens with. Um, we'll take internal credit. We'll, we'll do what we always do. We'll take a little bit of money from the inside. We'll use a little bit of that money from the pot from the outside and then we'll tax the rest of it. Um, who needs social security though? When you get Yang bucks, right? Always comes back to Yang. I don't know what it is about you people, but <laughs> I'm a hundred percent okay with auditing the fed though. I just realized you said auditing slash editing. We could do that right now. As far, as far as I'm concerned, we can, we can change the fed to act better to act more professionally, to act within the, the system that they were designed to, uh, just getting rid of it tomorrow has, has some pretty dire implications. Uh, I know that can sound a little statist of me to say that. I'm just trying to be uh, rational here. If you don't want a total system collapse, which is a thing, look it up. If you don't want a total system collapse and then us go into like a fallout post-apocalyptic wasteland, You'll want to transition out of a federal, the Federal Reserve. You don't want to drop out the, the bottom. So, I mean, so at this point we have like, let's GDP growth rates have been pretty insane for the last few years. And it's definitely something that I think is important. Um, it's, it's so, yeah. So this is for the first quarter of 2019, uh, GDP growth rate is at 2.4% at the end of this quarter. That's from the trading economics global macro models, which is basically like what international economic organizations use to determine where growth and and where credit viability and stuff like that is going to come for, which is just really esoteric and pretty it's it's very out there. But for the the the, the GDP in the long term, the GDP growth rate through 2020 is supposed to be a 1.9% increase, which is, you know, that's to account for dips and fluctuations inside of an economy. Um, but these are still big numbers. I don't, I mean, when you look at having one of 
one of, if not the world's most powerful economies, and you look at like a 1.9% growth rate across a year for that, that's a, that's an astronomical amount of money that we're talking about generating here. It, however, is not keeping pace with the national debt. And I know we always come back to this, but I just want to put this number up here for you guys in case you haven't looked at it anytime soon. I feel kind of bad. I feel a little sad. I missed... Twenty-two trillion two hundred twenty-two billion two hundred twenty-two million two hundred twenty-two dollars, or two hundred twenty-two thousand two hundred twenty-two dollars. So, I'm a little sad. Not gonna lie, but we'll get through this together. Wabam! Look at these beautiful numbers, folks. So we have national debt right here. Obviously, this is the the total number, the total amount of outstanding debt that we have. Um. And here's it by by citizen by taxpayer, uh, which we're at twenty two trillion two hundred sixty four billion dollars, um, and we're about to clock in another million in the time that we've been talking about this debt. Uh, debt per citizen is at sixty seven thousand six hundred ninety one dollars per taxpayer is one hundred eighty one thousand four hundred three dollars. That's up from the last time I used that number. U.S. federal spending it keeps increasing. Oh man. Uh, percent increase since 2000 is up 151 percent, 151 percent over over 19 years. That's I mean that's some math to do there for any of you guys who like using calculators. U.S. federal budget deficit keeps increasing as well. It is currently at 951 billion dollars. We almost have a trillion dollars in our federal budget deficit. Oh, God. Uh, and the uh, federal budget deficit surplus to GDP ratio, which some people say is like an esoteric term. Um, but obviously, when our economy was in, in the shitter and recovering in 2010, it's a 9.371%. Uh, in 2000, we had a, a positive 1.92% or 1.929%. And now we are sitting at a negative 4.511% something to something to consider guys is that we have we have some astronomical numbers that we're playing with here astronomical numbers uh tax revenues up as well which is just crazy too because the deficit it keeps increasing tax revenue keeps increasing because we keep changing tax programs there's just i just don't see i mean look at this so this is also from 2000 so it's only an 80 percent increase as opposed to the 151% increase in spending. So Jesus, I mean, come on. <laughs> Revenue per taxpayer is is just not enough to pay off this debt. We get $27,000 per taxpayer as opposed to the $181,000 of debt per taxpayer, which means if we took every cent and spent it on nothing new. Let's do let's do some quick maths here. Let's do some quick maths. I'm going to pull out my calculator, my cell phone. I, I'm genuinely curious. I've never done this calculation before. And this is, sorry, this is like the numbery uh, side of the Liberty After Dark show. But uh, so we have $181,000, 403, sorry, 100, $181,403. And we're going to divide that by $27,771. It would take six and a half years and a little bit of change to pay off. Wow. Yeah. It would to, to, if we spent nothing else, 
if we just stopped spending, if we just cut it all off today and we spent every single cent of taxpayer dollars going into the system, we still wouldn't be able to pay it off. It would take six and a half years. That's no military, no federal services, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no social security, none of that. Oh my God, that hurts, man. <sighs> that hurts. It really does. Excuse me. And, uh, you know, this kind of brings up back to the point one more time. And I think we'll start wrapping up after this. It's the idea of how do you pay that off? Can you? What do you do otherwise? Um, I'll be honest. I don't necessarily have a fantastic answer for this. Um, it's an area I sort of wish I did. But I just don't. Um, there are a lot of potential answers. One is you don't pay it and you just try to see what happens. I don't see that ending particularly well, but I would, you know, if it didn't, wouldn't surprise me necessarily. The way, the way international debt especially works is interesting. Let's just put it that way. It's just, it's a shame. It's a shame that we put ourselves in this position. It's a shame that I have to be having this conversation about federal deficit destroying everything <laughs> that's a little hyperbolic i'll be honest that's that is a wee bit hyperbolic um it won't destroy everything most likely if we keep it under control as long as you keep feeding the beast you'll be fine oh sirens just got here we were wrapping up too we've been i mean i've been blabbering up here for like an hour and 20 minutes now so I definitely, eh, it's probably closer to like an hour and 10 minutes, but you know, I'm getting a little, little talked out by myself. So <laughs> I was just wrapping up talking about the debt, but, uh, where was I? Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there's a lot of different scenarios that could come across whether you pay it, whether you pay some of it, whether you just pay international debt, blah, blah, blah. Most people agree that if you were to try to just get rid of the system, you have to pay off the debt at some point. You have to at least try. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I, ca I can't think of any other system that would just, or I can't think of anybody that would just blow over. They would just say like, Hey, you know that, you know, that debt, man, like forget about it. You guys are free now. So it's whatever. Maybe they would. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is a possibility. Maybe I'm just not seeing something that is uh, right in front of me, but I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical. How about that? I'll, I'll put it that way. I'm, I'm skeptical of our ability to ever pay off the debt. Uh, I'm skeptical of our ability to, to push, uh, push ourselves out of that. So we may have no other choice other than to drop it or, or pay international debts. And then everybody on the inside is just kind of screwed. I don't know. We'll have to, we'll, I'll have to put some thought into that. And I'm not, again, I'm not a, a, a licensed or, or a, a well-learned economist. I just, I know what I know. And, um, I, I have no idea if those are even options. So <laughs> I just know we have a problem and it needs a solution. <laughs> so it's really easy to be the guy to sit back and say like, Hey, there's something broken here, but to, uh, to fix it is, is a much harder task. And I, I can, I will commend anyone who takes a good swing at it. As long as you don't pull what the left is right now and saying that ah, the national debt doesn't even matter that's a ridiculous statement and everybody knows it we don't know what the threshold is but there is a threshold to where 
debt to income ratio for the federal government will get so bad that we will outpace our ability to pay interests on our debt payments, which to an extent is already happening. And at that point, that's when you start have to printing money to pay your debts, cut spending, jack up taxes, something. You have to upset the system at that point. And once the system is upset, that's when you get your reaction. We haven't done anything to upset the system yet. We've just kept on this crazy train. That's the issue. <laughs> that is the issue. I just don't I just don't see it changing anytime soon. The right dropped it after the 2008 campaign basically when the debt spiral was all they ever talked about. And now they just don't care anymore because they're like, "Ah, well, looks like we can just spend all this money." Well, it doesn't work that way. But good luck telling them that. That's all I'm going to say there. Good luck telling them that. Yeah, other than that, I guess I'll do my outro bit. If you guys enjoyed the show, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast provider. Like, comment, subscribe, whatever you got to do. It's available on YouTube, Spotify, uh, iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you'd ever want to listen to a podcast. You can find all, all of these there, or at least the ones I deem good enough to put up. Um, <laughs> uh, what I, what else? else? Uh, I, I have a Patreon now. I'll just plug it once. Um, if you guys want to donate something, if you like the show, I'm going to start doing a YouTube series. I'm looking at doing a book club. Um, the more time I put into this, uh, you know, I would, if, if you, if you enjoy the show and you enjoy the things I do, um, you can support me. If not, that's totally fine. I hundred percent. Okay. With that. I offer this for free for a reason. Otherwise I'd just charge for it up front. Um, <laughs> And uh, check out the Facebook page. You're already on it. So I hope you guys found it. Join the community group if you want to stay up to date for polls, stuff like that. Sometimes I make some changes uh, and I let people know there first. Um, and it's also just a good way to get directly a hold of me if you want to ask me about anything. Um, and it gets you access to my friends list. So <laughs> um, other than that, though, uh, I don't think I have anything else. Next episode will be the exact same time uh it'll be sunday well y'all saturday 9 p.m eastern how about that we'll say that u.s saturday 9 p.m eastern be there or be square hopefully we'll have a live guest hopefully we'll have somebody else on i'm sure you guys are tired of just listening to me talk i get tired of listening to me talk so i'm sure you guys are done but <laughs> is this where we're supposed to say i didn't sign shit when the bill shows up yeah <laughs> yeah exactly right i think we're pretty much done here um, I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your night and take it easy.